Thank you, Mark. Thank you, children's workers. Boy, that's exciting. You know what's happening? You can really influence a person when they're young. It's a lot harder when they're older. More people have touched your soul. More people have touched your life. You can have a great impact on a young person's life. And you never know what they're going to end up accomplishing and doing. Do we have the PowerPoint? Oh, good, thanks. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles this morning. We're going to read a psalm together. and uh, We're going to read Psalm 130. Psalm 130. So why don't you uh, stand with me, grab your Bible there in front of you, and then we'll go to John afterwards. But I like reading Scripture together. We want to inundate you with the Word of God because it's a living Word. It's powerful. It's dynamic. Amen? Psalm 130. Let's read it together. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. More than the watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Lord, I thank you that you are an amazing God. I thank you this morning that you can so work in our lives that you can literally transform our hearts. Lord, you can deliver us from the sins that so easily beset us, Father. Lord, I believe today you're going to speak powerfully into our lives, Lord, to maintain a good confession. Lord, I was thinking, Lord, of your confession before Pilate. You had maintained a good confession. You were willing to lay down your life for the truth. And I pray today as we hear your words, we hear truth, Lord, may we respond, O God, as even John the Baptist did and said, I need to decrease in order for Christ to increase. And I just pray today that we will have a beatific vision of the Lord Jesus. We will see you in your glory today. We will be drawn to you. We will be filled with hope, O oh God, that overcomes all of the things in our soul that would diminish us and devalue us, O oh God, which is what sin does. And Lord, I just pray today, Father, that you would strengthen us and you would encourage us as well as challenge us. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe just turn me down a little bit, Chris. At least I'm hearing myself quite loudly in this monitor. So. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3, verse 22. And we're going to go right to the end of the chapter. In 1998, a movie was created from a John Irving Ir Ir book. And John didn't really want this book to be converted into a movie. The book was entitled A Prayer for Owen Meanly. But he felt like, you know, people probably wouldn't want to go see this movie. So he wanted the producers to change the name. And they did. They agreed to do that. And they entitled the movie Simon Birch. How many ever saw the movie Simon Birch? Okay, some of you saw it. Simon Birch is really the story of 
a little boy named Simon who's born with an abnormally small heart. And uh, he, you know, there was a, another illness. I mean, he had dwarfism. So he was an extremely little child. And when he was born, they didn't even expect him to live the first 24 hours. But he exceeded everyone's expectations. And he actually lives to be an adolescence. Now, he begins his life as a real disappointment to his parents, which is really kind of tragic in some ways. And he's the target of all kinds of childhood pranks, not only because of his miniature size and his odd-sounding voice, which both those things are happening, but, you know, Simon has an amazing sense of self-worth. This is just, and it actually shakes people up. Uh, He has every reason to question that self-worth and purpose for living but he embraces his condition and he believes in his heart that God created him uniquely and also for a heroic purpose and it's really kind of classic one time he's you know he, he, he's uh, actually he has a friend named Joe and Joe's not a believer he doesn't believe in God and uh, and he's not the only one that I mean he kind of really doubts that God has anything big for Simon. But Simon's always talking like, you know, God's going to do something in my life. And his schoolmates are, are mocking him. And even the Sunday school teacher, you know, is a little bit uh, uptight because he kind of talks like, you know, God's real and, you know, he's got some great purpose and she's freaked out and she kind of, you know, hushes him up so he won't keep talking. And even the minister's got a problem with Simon. You know, because there's a scene in the movie that he's talking to the minister, and in a conversation between the two, Simon says to him, does God have a plan for us? And the minister's kind of hesitant. He said, well, I'd like to think he does. And Simon enthusiastically says, me too. You know, like, yeah, God's got a plan for us. And the minister's trying to, you know, cool him down a little bit. He says, well, I'm glad um, that that your faith is going to help you, you know, kind of deal with your condition. And dumbfounded by you know so but Simon then responds to him and says listen that's not what I mean I think I'm God's instrument and he's going to use me to carry out his plan and now he's a little bit shaken by uh, uh, Simon's confidence and so the pastor says well it's wonderful to have faith son but let's not overdo it (laughs) and that he kind of you know waves for Simon to leave and he shakes his head in disbelief and whispers with an air of cynicism yeah like right God's instrument but a short time later and this is toward the end of the movie Simon is riding in a school bus with his classmates and they're they're driving down an icy road and and suddenly the bus driver veers to to miss a deer that's in the middle of the road he loses control and the bus plunges into an icy lake everyone in the front of the bus is able to get out but there's a bunch of kids and Simon included at the back of the bus and they're trapped inside the bus as it's filling up with water. And Simon becomes extremely resourceful at that moment. I mean, the kids are screaming, they're panicking, they're kind of frozen with paralysis. And Simon runs to the back of the bus, and he sees there's a little window, and he opens her up, and he starts ushering kids out of the bus. He's literally saving their lives. And meanwhile, you know, he's he's having a hard time because the bus is filling up, and eventually... He climbs out of the bus. Everybody makes it out of the bus. And, and then the last few scenes are uh, in the hospital following that accident. And Joe, Simon's friend, is visiting Simon. And, uh, and, he, and Simon says to him, Did you see how the kids listened to me, Joe? And 
has tears in his eyes because, you know, because of Simon's small heart and he's got, you know, hypothermia and a lot of complications and he's actually dying. And he's got tears in his eyes and he says to him, yeah, Simon. And then Simon says, you know what? That window was just my size. He was able to get out and get the door open, I guess. He says, extra small, Joe utters with a smile. And a few seconds later, Simon dies, knowing that God has used him. In his mind, he saved the kids from the bus, right? But what Simon doesn't know, and I love this part, because there's a lot of things you and I don't know what God's doing in our lives. What he doesn't know is that because of his unwavering faith in God, Joe begins to believe in God. As a matter of fact, the last scene, or I don't know if it was the first scene and the last scene, it's kind of the, the same scene, it's like 20 years later, and here's he's standing. This Joe is now 20 years older, standing at Simon's gravestone. And he starts out and he says, I'm doomed, I'm doomed to remember a boy with a wrecked voice. Not because of his voice, or because he was the smallest person I ever met, but because he's the reason I believe in God. What faith I have, I owe to Simon Birch. Simon, help me. To become a follower of God. Now, I'm going to just say this to all of us here today. You know, I know we're in the Olympic season. I know there's fervor and, you know, national pride and all that stuff. And, you know, it, it's a joyful thing. And we can celebrate, but it's a fleeting moment. You know, the Olympics are a fleeting moment when you think about it. A lot of people have won Olympic medals and they're forgotten today. A lot of people's have gone, lives have gone on, and it hasn't gone on into total satisfaction. But the greatest joy and satisfaction in life can only be discovered when we find our purpose in knowing what God has for us. You know, one of the great Olympians in the past, he's not even in my notes, but I'm going to just talk about, mention this, is Eric Lytle. How many know who Eric Lytle is? They did a movie about him called Chariots of Fire. Remember that? He was a great runner. He was a Scottish boy. He ran for Great Britain. He won, the, he won a great race. You know, he was a big dispute. He didn't want to run on the Lord's Day because he didn't feel it was honoring to God. And when his sister asked him why he ran, he says, I believe that God made me this way, and there's a great, I have great joy when I run, and I believe that that's God's gift. But how many know that Eric Lytle actually not only won a gold medal, but Eric Lytle eventually... Uh, ended up being incarcerated in a Japanese internment camp during World War II. How many know that? He was a missionary. He went to Asia, and he actually died in that Japanese internment camp sharing his faith with people. But you know what? He had a purpose that transcended even the Olympics, is what I'm trying to get at today. You know, when, we when, when our purpose comes as we walk with Christ, when we do what we're freed from, when we're, when, we're, when we're doing what God wants us to do, we are actually freed from so much strife, so much stress, so much anxiety, so much disappointment, and so much discontentment. What causes people to strive and labor in life? What is the compelling motivation that fuels so many people's lives? You know, apart from God in our lives, shaping our attitudes and desires, the sinful human nature is such that we are driven, listen, by envy. 
You know, I've been reading a number of commentaries on the book of Ecclesiastes, and I've been really struck, you know, here's the motivating principle of what makes people do what they do, and it's found in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 4, and it says, And I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. Well, that's a very strong statement. You know, you and I probably don't think of it that way. We don't think that we're envious of people, but let me just point out, when when people around us get something that you and I don't get, what's your attitude? Do you just start rejoicing when people are doing good, or you go, what about me, God? The moment we start focusing on ourselves and we feel that somehow we're not getting a fair shake, that's envy. Isn't that amazing? And there's a lot more envy in our life than we're even consciously aware of. You know, envy is a very strong motivating foundation. But the book of Ecclesiastes goes on to say, you know, if that's what's driving your life, that's just a meaning, that, that's just, it's got no, va- it's, it's without any value. It's, it's meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. And a lot of people are spending a lot of energy chasing after nothing. And at the end of the day, Life is more than just the boy and the girl with the most toys wins. Because that's a sad indictment in our culture today. And you know, a lot of people are pursuing things. And can I tell you, at the end of your life, things won't matter. You'll be giving the toys away. I can guarantee you. It's not about that, folks. It's not about achieving things. It's not about you at all. As a matter of fact, What I'm going to try to share with you today is to help you live at a higher level. How many would like to say, I don't want to just be trapped living at the lowest common motivating denominator called envy. I want to transcend that. I want to move beyond that. I want to be set free from that kind of stuff. Do you know, in the Middle Ages, envy was classified as one of the seven deadly sins. Matthew in his gospel tells us that it was envy that drove the religious leaders to bring Jesus to Pilate. Uh, As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 17 and 18, it says, So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who's called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. I'm going to say something to us today that may startle you. Every time we allow envy to rule in our life, it's crucifying Christ. It's diminishing Christ in our life. But I do believe that when Christ becomes exalted within us, we diminish the envy in our soul. And that's where we're kind of going today. In our text today, oh, sorry, I see what I did. This is so interesting. You say, what is envy, Pastor? Envy is characterized by an insatiable desire. It's similar to jealousy in that they both feel discontent towards someone's trait, statuses, abilities, or rewards. The difference is the envious also desire the entity and covet. In other words, what they're upset about is it's not happening to them. <laughs> you know, Envy can be directly related to the Ten Commandments, which specifically say, neither shall you desire anything that belongs to your neighbor. See? Or covetousness. I mean, these things are kind of close together. You can see that. Dante defined, Dante was the great middle-aged writer who wrote, you know, uh, in the Inferno. What's the 
Dante's Inferno, yeah. He, he defines it as a desire to deprive other men of theirs, in other words, what belongs to others. In Dante's Purgatory, I don't know if you've ever seen that, but the punishment for the envious is to have their eyes sewed shut with wire because they've gained sinful pleasure from seeing others brought low. In other words, they delight in seeing others not do good. You know, anytime we rejoice when somebody's brought down, that's a form of envy. It's not a good thing. Aquinas, who was a theologian, described envy as sorrow for another's good. That's sad. You know, we rejoice when somebody's not doing, you know, that, they, that they're taken out, you know. So those are the Matthew scriptures. Let's take a look today in our text as we look at the testimony that John the Baptist had regarding Jesus. Now, this is the last time John is going to confess something about Christ. This is his last great confession. And I think there's something powerful about it. And I want to just say this, that John's purpose was to point people to Jesus. How many think he did a good job? I think he did an excellent job. The point of our text is not about the issue that's raised. We're going to see an issue raised in the story, and we're going to see the issue of envy come out. But John overcomes all of that. That's the part we're going to look at. And uh, what we're going to see in this text is that Jesus is actually superior to anything that has ever gone before him. As a matter of fact, all of the Old Testament, all of the prophecies, all of the promises are pointed to Jesus. He is the, the realization. He is the fulfillment of all that was promised by God. Is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so here in John's final confession regarding Jesus, we can learn three vital things about ourselves and about life. And I think that will help us live life at a higher level. How many would like to live life at a higher level? You know, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So the first thing we can learn from John's confession is how we can maintain our confession in times of challenge and confrontation. Now, think about it. It's interesting that Paul writing to Timothy says this, that when Jesus was standing before Pilate, he gave a good confession. So this is an important thing, folks. And I, when I'm talking about confession here, I'm not just talking about the words on our lips, okay? Let's move past that idea. When we talk about a good confession, what we're talking about is the essence of our life standing up and supporting what we're saying. So it's not just what you say, it's how you support it, okay? And so Jesus literally stood up and supported everything he said. He supported the truth even at the cost of his life, even at the cost of his popularity, even at the cost of possibly being misunderstood. That's a good confession. So let's take a look at John. It's, you know, first of all, we know we're going to be tested as believers, not just what we believe, but we're going to be tested in how we live it out. That's the real test, isn't it? And we're going to get tested every single day on this level. So how do we handle setbacks and disappointments? How do we handle it when others advance and we don't? How do we handle it when others are succeeding and we seem to be stuck? Or maybe not only stuck, maybe we're even in a failure mode and we're seeing somebody else move forward. How do you feel about that? We're going to talk about that. I think it's easy to be looking at ourselves and comparing ourselves with other people. We tend to do that. We can easily be envious of those who are doing better and critical of those who are doing worse. We may feel God is unjust because he's blessing someone else while we're going through a time of great trial. Like, why are they being blessed and why are we going through this trial? God's not fair. But what's really driving that thought is envy. And that's what we need to understand. 
here we see the true character of John the Baptist as he's able to overcome the temptation of envy and jealousy because he understands what his mission is. And he's rejoicing to see God's purposes being accomplished in his life. Let's pick up the story in John chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. So we're getting a little antithetical thought here, a little addition this was happening before John was in prison. Remember who he was, and then eventually he was executed. And so there must have been some, in John writing this, his, his uh, gospel here, there must have been later on some misunderstanding toward the beginning of Jesus' ministry. John is bringing a little measure of clarity for us. It says, An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the manner of ceremonial washings. Now, how many know that there's nothing worse than theological argumentation. <laughs> I mean, you can argue theology until you're blue in the face. So this Jew comes along, and they're arguing over the significance of ceremony. And remember, Jesus literally showed us a couple of weeks ago when I preached on the cleansing of the temple. It's not about, you know, Jesus come, came to bring genuine transformation and cleansing, not just a superficial thing. There was something superior about what Jesus was doing. But they were arguing over this. But that's not the point of the story. It says they came to John. Now, these are, these are G John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, remember John had said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John was pointing to Jesus. John was saying, Here's your Messiah. My job is to be a herald, to come before him and prepare the way, prepare God's people for the coming of the Messiah. Now, they came to him and said, the one you were testifying about, well, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. That's an interesting statement. In other words, there's bigger crowds over there than there are over here. Can you hear that? How many hear that? You know, how many know we're caught up with this? numbers thing. Don't tell me we're not. We're, we're hung up on this stuff. And you think, well, we're, we're spiritual now. We don't think about those things. Yes, we do. It's here in the Bible, and there's a reason for it, because we get all hung up on this stuff. Now, at issue in the mind of John's disciples is, is you know, not the argument over baptism or it was not a theological argument. What it was was a practical concern. People were leaving John to follow Jesus, and they were uptight about that. And actually, if they really heard John, they should have been leaving John and going to Jesus. How many understand that? But sometimes people develop loyalties, you know, and they have a hard time moving on. D.A. Carson says, Apparently the debate with the Jew fostered further reflection among some of John's disciples over the durability of their master's ministry, especially in light of the rising popularity of Jesus. In other words, their, 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 their ministry was waning. Well, let me tell you something. There'll come a time in all of our lives where our ministry wanes. It's true. It'll happen. You know, we can go up and down, and, you know, and the whole focus is wrong. 
And I, we can all go through this. I've, I've experienced some of this in my own life, and I have to work in my own mindset to figure out what is going on. And God is, has to speak into your life and straighten you out and straighten me out. Somebody was rising above their rabbi in popularity to people, and they were battling a little bit with envy and jealousy. But how, how, how is this going to impact their lives? How many know that John wasn't long for this world? God was about ready to take him out of the planet anyway, so it's no big deal. And you know, you and I don't know what tomorrow holds, so we have to be thankful for the moment that we're in. And we need to be hearing what God's saying at that time. Let me move on to the second thing we can learn from John's confession. The first one is, you know what? There are going to be challenges to our confession. And we're going to be tempted to envy what other people are doing. Okay? How many see that? Everybody see that? That's normal. That's, that's part of being human. And we have to deal with that in our lives. Well, what's the second thing we can learn from John's confession? It's simply this. It's the confidence in God's calling in our lives. And I love John because he understands who he is and what God's called him to do. John understood that all that he had was actually what God had given him. And I'm going to say this to you and I. All that we have, God gives to us. If he wants you to have more, he'll give you more. If he wants you to have less, he'll take some away. We've got to start relaxing a little bit. Now, we think it's... See, our culture has so ingrained into our minds, it all depends on us. And I'm going to say something. It depends far less on you than you think. It depends far more on what God wants and what God knows you and I can handle far more what God knows what he wants to do in our lives. So, John's response, I believe, is both instructive and insightful. There's no envy inside of John. There's no jealousy inside of him. There's just a deep satisfaction. He was accomplishing exactly what God had called him to do. Look at verse 27. Now, John is going to respond to his disciples. He says to them, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. Oh, isn't that powerful? In other words, you and I have what God has given us. And, you know, once you get a hold of this, you say, listen, you know, some people want to be great singers, and they're not. They don't have that gift. And they're a legend in their own mind. And some people exploit them, especially on those American Idol shows or Canadian Idol shows, right? They get a person, and they think they can sing. And we watch it and we go, didn't anybody tell them they can't do it? You know what I mean? How many know what I'm talking about? That's a person that's not dealing with reality. And every, you know, and I feel sorry for those people. You know, I wish they wouldn't do that. But you know, I know what they're doing. They're trying to you know, sell their program, right? And they're making fun of these people. They're making it at the expense of those persons. I mean, that is as cruel as you can get to awaken a person to reality. You know? We need to know, who am I? And how has God developed me? And what has He wired into my life? Do you know, how many would take your hammer out of your toolbox when you need a saw? You know? And try to cut a, you know, a board with a hammer. That's going to be a very long, tedious, wrong, you're going to mess up the wood process. You know what I'm saying? And a lot, of, a lot of people just try to do things that God's not asking them to do. Or people are pressuring you to become something you weren't designed to become. 
or you aspire to something that God isn't asking you to do. And so we have to have a realistic expect, uh, estimation of who God wants us to be. See, John goes on to say in verse 20, You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, I'm not the anointed one, I'm not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. I love what Ken Hughes says, Whether we are looking at ourselves or others, the proper way to evaluate success is to remember that we can receive nothing unless it's been given from heaven. Boy, get a hold of that in all of our lives. Lord, I am what I am, Paul says, by the grace of God. I'm doing what I'm doing by the grace of God. I'm content in my life because I'm doing what God's asked me to do. You know, there's so much discontent in our culture, so much dissatisfaction, because I think people are putting stuff on themselves that God isn't putting on them. How's that? You know? You know, I'm reading through Ecclesiastes. You know what the essence of that book is? Enjoy life because you can enjoy what God has blessed you with. But most people are living in a state of envy and they're never satisfied with what they have and therefore they can't enjoy what they got. And that's tragic. It really is. F.F. Bruce writes it this way. Every man, says John, has his allotted gift or ministry from God. His responsibility is to fulfill that. John was appointed to be a herald and a witness of the Messiah. He might well be content to have fulfilled that commission. All gifts come from God, including the gift of serving Him in this or that capacity. I say to people, whatever you have, do it with all your heart. Give God your best and let the results fall where they may. Right? Don't get hung up on, you know, we're, we're really, you know, our, our culture is results-orientated. And I know I, you go, Pastor, listen, you don't have to tell us. We work and, you know, we're always told we've got to do more, do better, right? And the pressure is, is insane. And I think if you're an owner, get a hold of reality sometimes, you know. I'm just telling you, that's reality. What does God want from all of this? I think, I think each of us has something to do. We've been given something to accomplish we're not in competition with each other. We should be each other's greatest cheerleaders. You know, my prayer for our staff, and I tell them this, is that they will do greater things than I've ever done. And I'm not going to be envious of it. I'm going to rejoice in it. That is why I'm here, to help other people do good. If we have people come out of our congregation and do greater things, I rejoice in that. That's awesome. You know? Amen. Right. We should be happy for the people who are doing good. And the people who are not doing good, instead of looking down, we should be crying and weeping and praying and saying, God, help them, and, and encouraging people. You know, sometimes a little encouragement for some of these young people will help them go a long ways. Maybe working in children's ministry, you may help raise up one of God's greatest leaders in Canada. You don't know that. They're sitting in our children's ministry. It's just a thought. You know, you want to have a great influence in someone's life. Touch a child's life, and you'll find out how great that influence is. They'll never forget. Younger people will never forget an older person's concern and interest in their life. I think, what are we called to do? I think we're to live our lives as a faithful witness to Christ to those around us. If we're parents, it's to model and instill in our children Christ's lifestyle. And values. We're to be faithful and honest employees. 
If we're in management or in ownership, then we're to not only provide a service or a place of employment. You know, it's not just about making money. It's about caring for those that work with you and for you and those you serve as customers. It's not just about making the bottom line dollar. You know, collectively as a church family, we're to serve each other and we're to serve those beyond ourselves. We're to reach beyond ourselves and help our community and our world. We're to reach out. What an amazing thing to think of the thousands of lives we have already and are currently ministering to. We have touched thousands of people's lives, folks. It's not just the current people here. You know, people have come, people have gone. We're ministering all over the world, and we're ministering through people's lives. And we're, we're influencing our city big time. How many know we have influenced our city? You know, the mayor is from our church. You don't think we're influencing our city? Do you know the former uh, opposition leader of Prime Minister Kretchen, or uh, Paul Martin, was uh, Stockwell Day. Where he was attending our church. He's a part of our, he was a part of our church family. See, you have to understand, we have had inordinate amount of influence in our nation. How many can see it? So it's not just us attending church. We need to think differently than that. The temptation is to allow sin to deceive us into thinking we're either better or worse than we really are. We may be tempted to think that we're not making a difference. We may be tempted to get weary. We may be tempted to say, my life doesn't make a difference, so I just give up. But I want to just go through a little passage, a section of Scripture found in the book of Galatians. It says, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, what's happening? He's in self-deception. He's deceiving himself. Each of you should test his own actions. In other words, we need to figure out who we are, okay? And if you don't know, get people that are close to you and say, look, be honest with me. What am I good at? What am I good for? <laughs> right? And be nice, because everybody's good for something. God doesn't make junk, right? We need to say to them, listen, I've, you know what? Encourage people. To say, you know, when you do this, you have a gift, and you are a blessing, and we need to keep encouraging people around us to operate in their gifts so that they will not grow weary in well-doing, and they'll be encouraged, and they'll keep serving and keep building up the body of Christ. Then he can take pride in himself. He isn't interesting. He uses that word pride there. You know, there's a false pride, and there's a false humility. In other words, we can say, hey, I've given it everything I've got. I may not have won a gold medal at the Olympics, but at least I made the Olympics. We forget that kind of stuff. There's a lot of people that try to even get there. Just being an Olympian's a big deal, right? That person should take pride. Hey, I made the Olympics. I didn't win the gold, but at least I participated and he gave it. And if you did your best, you could say, you know, this year I was at the Olympics and it was my personal best. It may not have been a gold medal, but it was my personal best. I gave it my best for my country. I think that person should go home and keep their heads held high. Right? How many are getting what I'm, the drift I'm getting at here? It says, then he doesn't have to compare himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must uh, have all good thing, uh, share all good things with his instructor. Let the SL. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And I said to you earlier, eternal life is not just forever life, it's a quality of life. 
And then let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. You know, a lot of people give up before they should. How many think that's true? They just get discouraged. If you can encourage a person before they can get discouraged, you've done a great thing. You have no idea the blessing they'll bring to someone else. So I think we need to rejoice in how God has gifted us. We need to be faithful to the opportunities He's brought to us. We need to be true to what God has called us to. Amen? Don't sit on the sidelines and, you know, criticize other people. Get in the game. Right? Do your part. You go, yeah, but it's such a little part. Hey, little parts all add up. D.A. Carson points out, for John the Baptist to have wished he were someone else, and sometimes we do that, right? Called the servant away, many would judge more prominent, would simply be covetous by another name. If the person he envied were the Messiah himself, he would be annulling the excellent ministry God had given him. Discontent over God's wise, sovereign disposition of people and things would in that instance betray not only unbelief and faithfulness, but the worst forms of the perennial human sin, the arrogance that wants to be God and stand where God stands. What is he basically saying? He's saying when you're not happy with God's your lot in life, you're basically saying, I want to take over and be God of my life. That's what he's saying. And that's a temptation we all... By the way, that's the ultimate temptation. That was the temptation in the garden. And for some of us who don't think, you know, well, if I was in the garden, I wouldn't have messed up. Actually, the story is designed to teach us is really that mo- for most of us, well, for all of us, we'd have messed up. And for some of us, it's because we wouldn't have said anything. A lot of us go, well, you know, at least I didn't say anything. Well, that's what Adam did. That didn't help the cause. So some of you, you think you're real spiritual because you're not saying anything. That's not always good either. Just pointing some things out to all of us. You know, we think, well, I'm super spiritual. I never say anything. At least I don't say the bad thing. Well, but sometimes we need to pipe up. And it takes moral courage to pipe up. And we're gutless. Whoops. Everybody was with me until I said that. (laughs) But it's the truth. When John gives us an analogy here, he gives the analogy. It's interesting. In verse 20, he says, The bride belongs to the bridegroom. He's now going to give an analogy. Why he doesn't envy Jesus. He says, The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. The, that joy is mine and it is now complete. They have to understand the wedding tradition of the Jewish people. That actually, the best man in the Jewish tradition, the friend of the bridegroom, actually had a responsibility. You go, what? He actually helped prepare the wedding. Did you know that? So it wasn't a wedding coordinator. The best man's job was to do what the wedding coordinator does today. Okay, number two, he had another job. He had to guard the bridal chamber. And that was an important job. And he was to make sure that nobody got in there when the bride went in there but the bridegroom. Okay, that was his job. And he would wait at that door until the bridegroom showed up. And as soon as he, you know, because maybe it was in the evening, it was dark, and when he heard the bridegroom's voice, and the bridegroom says, hey, I'm, I'm arrived, I'm coming into the bridal chamber. What did the bridegroom's friend do? He let him in, and then he left because his job was done. And that's exactly what Job is saying. John the Baptist is saying, hey, 
I did my job. I stood here. The bride is in the bridal chamber. The bridegroom has now come. And it's all a picture because in, in, the, in the Old Testament, we realize that God sees himself as married to his people. And that the people of God are the bride and God is the bridegroom. Isn't that great? And that's what Isaiah is telling. No longer will they call you deserted or name your name desolate, but you will be called Hezbah. Hezbah and your land, Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you. That's what Hezbah means. And their land will be married. That's what Beulah means. You'll be married to God. Wow. And as a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And what does Paul use as an analogy in the New Testament that you and I, the church, is what? The bride of Christ. And who is the bridegroom? Jesus and John is saying, he's arrived. I've done my job. Wow, that's great. Finally, we come to the heart of the issue in John 3.30. I love this text. He must become greater, I must become less. Oh, that's where the battle is in our lives, isn't it? At the heart of the issue, the battle is who will have supremacy. Will it be Christ or me? If Christ is to gain the ascendancy of my soul, I must become less. I must decrease in order for Christ to increase. I must yield my will daily to allow Christ to rule in my life. Let me move to the third expression here of confession. It's a conviction that Christ is preeminent. Doesn't John say it so beautifully? He must increase, I must decrease. He goes on to say, what comes from above is above all. You know, what originate in heaven, what originates in heaven is greater than anything on earth. Therefore, what Jesus has to say is greater. His personhood is greater. We need to hear his message, which some have rejected. But to those who have received it, they're going to receive eternal life. Do you know when we receive Jesus, we receive eternal life? And it's not just forever life. We receive that eternal life right at the moment we receive Christ. And when we receive eternal life, we're receiving a quality of life. Eternal life means a new internal dynamic at work within us, changing us, giving us peace and hope and strength and courage to face whatever comes our way. You know, I think by nature, humanity is very fearful. We're all cowards at heart. I hate to tell us this, but it's the truth. Why does the Bible say fear not, right? But now, we, you know, with Christ in us, it's amazing. You know, when you have... When you are standing on the high ground, as a matter of fact, strategically in battles in the olden times, people would try to get to the higher ground because it was strategically advantageous to be fighting from above rather than below. When we're standing on the high moral ground, we're able to sustain a lot more than when we're on a low ground. Isn't that the truth? And it's kind of hard to be courageous when your life's a wreck. But when you're doing what God wants you to do, you can be absolutely fearless and very courageous. Okay. Oh. John goes on to tell him regarding the supremacy of Christ. Look at verse 31, and we'll end with these thoughts. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and, but no one accepts his testimony. Now, John is going to go on and modify that. Some have accepted his testimony, but a lot have rejected it. The man who has accepted it, see in the next breath he says that, 
has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God sends speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. Let me unpack those four verses. F.F. Bruce says, There is no suggestion of evil in being from earth, but one of limitation. I think that's the right way to understand this. In other words, when you come from heaven, you have unlimited abilities. When you're on earth, we're all limited to some degree. How many here would say, I have a few limitations in my life? Yeah, I could say that about myself. I'll be the first to admit that. Even John's witness, excellent as it was, was subject to limitations because he was a man sent for... While he was a man sent from God, he did not come down from heaven as the Son of Man did. In other words, yes, he was sent from God, but he didn't come from heaven. Jesus was not only sent from the Father, he came from heaven. He has a huge advantage. He can talk about heavenly things because he's experienced and seen those things. That's what John is trying to tell us. John's own witnesses of supreme validity, sorry, Jesus' own witnesses of supreme validity because when he speaks of heavenly things, he bears witness to what he's seen and heard in the heavenly sphere. He's experienced it. You know, you can talk, tell people about things you've never experienced. You can learn about things you've never experienced, but the day you experience it changes everything for you. Isn't that the truth? The first reason John gives for the supremacy of Jesus Christ is that he originates from heaven and knows heavenly things. Folks, let's admit, we're all earthly. We're created from the stuff of this world, and we need to be infused with life from above. Second reason John gives of the supremacy of Christ is that he has been given the Spirit without measure, whereas each of us, though filled with the Spirit, have been given a measure to accomplish the task that God has given to us. Now, this is interesting. This is an amazing statement. Jesus was given the Spirit without measure. Now, you know, I'm studying this passage, and there are people that would like us to think that, you know, we all have the Spirit without measure. I don't buy that. I don't think this passage supports that. As a matter of fact, you know, I'm reading this passage, and the whole context of the passage is showing the supremacy of Christ. How many can see that? Number one. Number two, it actually comes out even more clearly in the Greek, believe it or not. I'm, I'm not pulling that up, but I mean, I went to my Greek Bible, and I went to the, the lexicon, and I was looking it all up, and I was looking up, you know, the tenses and the singular, plural, third-person plural, and I was looking at all this stuff, and when I was looking at this, I realized that what this is about is that Jesus has been given the Spirit without limit. And you and I have been given the Spirit to accomplish the task that we've been given. What Jesus had to do was far greater than what you and I have to do. And I know some people will say, yeah, but pastor, didn't Jesus say that when he left, he would get us, we would do greater things than he has done? You know, didn't he say that? And the answer is, yes, he did. But my answer to you is simply, yes, that's true. Quantitatively true. In other words, Jesus is saying to us that we will actually do more miracles than he ever did because he was limited in time and space at that moment to do those miracles. But the church has continued on for 2,000 years, and there have been a lot more miracles since that time. And so quantitatively, we have done greater things than Jesus ever did. But qualitatively, we've not done anything greater. How many here have actually raised people from the dead? I haven't done that yet. I don't know, but have anybody else had that experience? And, you know, I haven't got up in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and said, peace be still, and the whole weather changed. Man, if you could do that in Alberta, you could kind of command a great salary. Could you not? Just start talking to the weather and telling it to shape up. 
I think anybody would want you on their staff, and they would probably be willing to pay a lot for that kind of a, an ability, wouldn't you think? You know, I think a big company says, i got a big project, I need the weather to be nice today. Don't you think that you could actually command quite a salary just traveling from company to company, you know, changing the weather for them? It's just a thought. You know, I don't think we pull that kind of stuff. So I guess what I'm trying to get across to us is basically saying that the passage seems to support, by the supported by the context, that what jo John is saying is Jesus is the anointed one. See, the word Messiah means the anointed one. The Spirit has come without measure. Now, you could argue, yeah, but we're in Christ, Pastor. That's true. But we can only do what the will of the Father wants us to accomplish. That's what we need to understand. And there was something about Jesus. I mean, would to God that we could just so yield our will to the Father's will. You know, Jesus did that perfectly. You and I, you know, we haven't done that perfectly. I should say, I have not done that perfectly. I have not completely yielded to the Father's will in every respect. I have a little battle once in a while. Does anybody else wrestle with the will of the Father? Anybody have a little problem, you know, doing what God wants you to do at times? Well, this is what he's talking about here. Anyways, and now we come to verse 35 where the Father himself testifies of the Son. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hand. See, that unlimitedness is being given to the Son. And what, whoever believes in the Son says that John has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Okay. I think the other reason why I don't believe we have the Spirit without measure, and here's what happens to human beings. We tend to idolize people rather than focus on the source of their life, which is the Spirit. How many know that's true? We tend to idolize people. We tend to elevate the human instrument and not realize where the source really is coming from. It's the Spirit of God. I don't know. Maybe that's the reason why there's so much spiritual contention and tension that happens in many believers' life. Unlike John, we lose sight of the preeminence of Christ. He must be greater while we become less. In other words, it's not about us. Do you know that's such a hard lesson to learn? Let me ask you a question in closing. Who do you want to hang with? A person where it's all about them or a person who can live a life that says it's not about me and tends to focus on everybody else? Who do you want to be around? The second person. Why is that? Isn't that kind of obvious to us? Isn't that kind of attractive to us to be around that? And how many here say, you know what, Pastor, it really does come down to this. When Christ increases and we decrease, you know what? Envy has no operating room. Sin doesn't have operating room. You know, William Carey, the founder of Modern Missions, was dying. He turned to a friend and says, when I'm gone, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's Savior. I desire that Christ alone might be magnified. It is only fitting that we magnify Christ because ultimately our greatest satisfaction from life comes from Christ. Let's stand. Let me ask you the question. Envy. Ecclesiastes says the reason why we actually try to achieve things, the reason why we're working so hard is our motivation of envy. We want to be, we want to be recognized. 
we want to succeed. We want to be successful, right? It's the reason, according to the book of Ecclesiastes. Can I tell you, there's only one person you have to please. This is going to help your life out so much. The, pers- the people here in the room right now that are saying, you know, I try to please so many people. Can I just help you today? You only have to please one person. And that's not yourself, by the way. That's what the world says. No, you've got to just please God. Thy will be done, Father. I want to just please you. I want to play to an audience of one. I want to please you. If I'm pleasing you, I can live with myself, and there'll be mixed reviews about me. That's the way it works. You can't please everybody. Don't go down that road. That is a terrible road to be on. I just tell you, that's a bad road. Don't go down that. What am I really saying today? What is John really telling us? Christ must be preeminent. And I want to tell you something. When he, when he is in our lives, you will be deeply satisfied. How many say, I'll go for satisfaction? I'm going for that. I want to be deeply satisfied in life. So I think there's a hunger in our hearts to have our lives in a somewhat order and that there's meaning and significance and purpose to it. That's why we're living on this life. And I'm telling you, that all comes when you're pleasing the Father in heaven. Lord, what is your will today? When you get up in the morning and say, Lord, what are we doing today and what is your will? And whatever you want, that's fine with me. And you know, you're going to have things thrown your way and you go, I didn't plan for this today. You ever have those moments? And that's when you have to have a talk with your soul and say, you know what, this is not what I planned for today. But then you say to yourself, but God, you planned this today. So now I'm going to have to respond to this. And how am I going to respond? Well, if Christ is increasing and I'm decreasing, it's like, okay, this is the road we're going today. I'm going to make the best of this. I want to see what God's going to do with this road. How many already begin to see that this helps you live life? Anybody see that? This is going to help you live life. It's going to help you to have more relationships. You know, some people say, well, I don't have a lot of friends. Well, I'll tell you, if you're the kind of person that's constantly caring about other people, everybody's going to want to be your friend. Hello? But if it's all about you, you may find people dropping off after a while. Just a thought. I'm your friend here today. I'm trying to help you. I'm just telling you, if you'll make Christ preeminent in your life, if he increases and you decrease, you're going to live a more satisfied life. That's what I'm telling you today. With every head bowed, how many here say, Pastor, I'm for it. That's, that's my cry. That's my desire. I can't overcome these things in my life in my own strength. I know that. But if Christ will increase and I will decrease, then I won't be so worried about what's happening to the other guy because, you know what? God's giving me exactly what I need. I don't have to compete with them. I'm doing exactly what God's asked me to do. I'm satisfied being who I am. I don't have to be someone else. I don't have to have their gifts to accomplish their tasks because I have my gifts to accomplish the task God's called me to. And I can rest in that. What a beautiful place of contentment. How many see it? Is that you today are saying, Lord, that's me. My prayer today is, Lord, may you increase. And Lord,
Lord, may I decrease. May more of my life bring out the supremacy of Christ to others. It's less about me and it's more about you. So that at the end of my life, I can honestly say, like William Carey, don't talk about me. Talk about my Savior. Bring glory to His name because He's the one that sustained me, carried me, empowered me, helped me to overcome. He's the one that helped me to accomplish what needed to be done. Amen? Father, I just thank you this morning. What a great Savior.